When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co and journalist, Paula Slice. Hi, everybody. You know, Steve, Ohio has had many, far too many cases involving missing children. But if the case of a single child disappearing forever is heartbreaking, you can double that agony in tonight's story. An incident in which a pair of nine-year-old best friends vanished without a trace from their neighborhood in Fairfax, Ohio. Now, Fairfax is a village in Hamilton County that's east of Cincinnati. Today, it's about about 1,900 people here who call it home. And there's a smattering of businesses and a, a busy thoroughfare that brings people to and from the county seat. Back in 1964, it was also home to John Hundley and James McQuarrie, who would be celebrating their 65th birthdays this year if they were still alive. Well, back in 1964, John and Jimmy, they were a pair of third graders at Fairfax School. They were so much more than classmates, though. They both had plenty of siblings. John was one of four. James was one of five. But they spent all their free time in each other's company. They loved being outdoors and pretty much had the run of their neighborhood, as kids did back then. The last family member to see the pair was Bonnie Hundley. That was Johnny's older sister. Bonnie recalled that final moment when she gave an interview to WCPO in Cincinnati in 2017. Bonnie was sort of a surrogate mother for Johnny. She was 20 years old and the oldest of the four Hundley children. Their father had died a year earlier, and their mother, Gladys Hundley, had returned to the workforce. So Bonnie was the one looking after the young ones. Now, Bonnie last saw the boys on October 15, 1964. That was a Thursday at 3.30 p.m. in the afternoon. It wasn't long after school had let out for the day. Johnny returned to his home on Germania Avenue and collected some Coke bottles. You know, back then, Steve, Coke bottles were cash to youngsters. They had deposits on them. And back when I was growing up in the 60s, they were two cents each. And we'd take them up to the corner store and turn them in. A carton held eight bottles. And back then, 16 cents, 
bought a lot of penny candy. Did they, did, did pop bottles have deposits when you were a kid? They were 10 cents. 10 cents? Yep. Did you ever take them to the store to get your candy money? Uh, only at grandma's. I'd go up to that corner store up there. Like Bozdens. Yeah. That was the same place we went to in the 60s. It was still <laughs> around. Well, I don't know if that was their intention with their, their little money. But Bonnie watched as the boys walked up the street together. Johnny was dressed in his white T-shirt, black jeans, and white gym shoes. Jimmy was in a blue and yellow striped polo shirt, brown jeans, and brown shoes. They swung the cartons they carried. They were always together, Bonnie said. They were inseparable. While Johnny was away, Bonnie prepared dinner. But at 6 o'clock, Johnny still wasn't home yet. Bonnie said he was not the type of child that didn't come home on time. He was always there when he was supposed to be. He'd been known to borrow a dime to make a phone call to let his family know if he was running late. So she was very concerned, and she picked up the phone and called her mom. Mrs. Hundley told her daughter, call around, check with other friends and neighbors. And Bonnie did so, every once in a while pausing to walk outside and shout her brother's name. Nobody had seen him, and her calls outside brought no response. Mrs. Hundley came home from work, and at 8.30, she called the police. The officers who arrived initially thought the boys might have run away. Bonnie said there was no call to think that. She said there was no reason. There was no argument. Nobody was fighting. Nobody was mad at him. Nothing. He just walked up the street with the pop bottles. After learning the boys had vanished, employees at Frisch's Mainliner, that was a very popular drive-in restaurant in the Frisch's big boy chain, oh, okay. yeah. contacted them to say the two boys had stopped in there. Well, apparently the reason they had even stopped in there was the restaurant, the restaurant was on Worcester Pike, and Jimmy lived on that road with his parents, James and Matilda McQuarrie. And Jimmy's mother had given him a dollar and four cents, exact change, to settle a bill there. But the waitress who met with the boys said they paid with a $20 bill. Hmm. They volunteered that they had found the money. That seemed odd. But that 4 p.m. encounter seemed to be the last confirmed sighting of the boys. The witnesses said the boys left the restaurant, crossed the intersection outside, and were seen chatting with other youths. Actually, Steve, it makes me kind of wonder if that $20 bill was a, a reason why police initially wanted to hold on the idea of those boys being runaways. Like, you know, where did that $20 come from? Did one of them take it because they thought they were going to need it? But there were plenty of other tips. Boys matching their description were seen near some freight cars the following day. A rail yard employee said the cars were destined for Illinois, and so word was sent down the line, and railroad workers started looking through freight cars, thinking perhaps the boys had gone off on some adventure. But the search was still on back home as well. Hundreds of officers and civilian volunteers searched the village for the boys. They combed the high grass and the brush along the Little Miami River. They dug up recent construction sites. One theory that developed was that the boys might have fallen down a construction hole. 
There was a lot of development going on in 1964, especially in the Worcester Pike area. Lots of large mounds of freshly dug soil that might really be enticing to a pair of nine-year-olds. Maybe they fell into a ditch and the loose dirt caved in on them. Workers dug up several work sites in a vain search. Fairfax even dug up some recent pipes that had been laid on Spring Street all along the west side of the village, just tore it up thinking the boys might have fallen into a hole that led them there. The digging didn't turn up a single shred of evidence. But it did lead to a man who called police to say that on Saturday, now that was two days after the boys went missing, he saw a pair of boys cleaning up in a restroom at Lunkin Airport. Now the airport was in the immediate vicinity, though it was still quite a walk for two nine-year-olds. Police also heard from a woman who said she and three other hunting companions had come upon two boys who were covered with burrs near the mouth of the Little Miami River. That was on the day after Johnny and Jimmy disappeared. She said they stopped them and asked the hunting party how the hunting was going and didn't seem particularly distressed. But in neither of those cases could police confirm the boys in question were John and James. The community, meanwhile, was on edge and not entirely sure that the boys hadn't been murdered. You see, the village was still reeling from the recent slaying of one of its other children. Four-year-old Debbie Dappen had been killed by a 13-year-old neighbor boy who had confessed to it and hid her under his front porch. That case wasn't a mystery anymore, but it was only two months old, and her death made the village feel particularly vulnerable. And wouldn't you know it, three years after Johnny and Jimmy disappeared, it seemed like Fairfax might have had good reason to feel that way. A 17-year-old Marine named Gary Lee McKee, and yes, apparently he made it into the Marines at the age of 17. He went AWOL from where he was stationed in San Diego, California. Gary had grown up in Fairfax. He was a 14-year-old teenager there when the boys vanished. He joined the Marines in the summer of 1967, reportedly following the footsteps of an older brother who had been drafted. And apparently he was regretting his decision because this was the second time he was reported AWOL. Hmm. But this time, in September of 67, he walked into Bethany Lutheran Church there in San Diego and told the minister he had killed those boys. He said he and another boy, whose name was never published, lured the two youngsters into the woods, stabbed them to death, and hid their bodies. McKee said he did it to get revenge for a dispute he had with Jimmy McQuarrie's older brother. McKee then shared a story with police and offered to show them where he buried the bodies. John Hunley's mom accompanied them as McKee took the caravan of cruisers from one place to another. Each site was fully developed, not easily searched, but it didn't matter because before they even had the chance to consider whether to search it, McKee would change his mind and direct them to another spot. After hours of this goose chase, McKee said 
he was lying, that he needed a reason to get out of the service. If you'll recall, 1967, that was the time of the Vietnam War. Police gave him several polygraphs and he passed them all. They even dug up about 90 square feet of his backyard after he said he buried the murder weapon there. In the end, police decided it was all a charade and McKee's plan worked. The Marines refused to take him back. Bonnie recalled that her mother Gladys was absolutely devastated. Anyway, Fairfax police detective Mike Murphy told WCPO, he's been working on the case for decades. He was only 14 when the boy vanished, but nine years later, he joined the force. And soon after that, he started poring over the old case files. He left Fairfax police in 1984 and went to the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation. But 26 years after that, he returned to Fairfax and reopened the case again. With DNA technology being what it is today, and Murphy having been with the BCI and knowing the possibilities, he figured he'd better get the DNA of the boys on file. He collected samples from relatives and uploaded them to the national database. If unidentified remains came in from anywhere in the country now, they'd be able to compare them with John and Jimmy. Detective Murphy said there may have been as many as 50 theories on what happened to the boys today. As the years went by, the case grew not more focused, but more baffling. One rumor was that a man driving a Cadillac had stopped and picked the boys up. Murphy didn't think so. He said, I think it's unlikely that these two kids would let somebody grab them both up. In 2010, someone told police the boys were abducted and buried, but it was in an area where police had already looked. They took another look, but determined the tip to be false. One of the strangest tips came from a woman who lived in Foxborough, Massachusetts. She sent an email to Fairfax police to say her father had killed those boys, that he had abducted them, murdered them in the basement of the Foxborough home, then buried them beneath the porch. Her father used to live in Middletown, Ohio. That was about a half hour's drive from Cincinnati. So Murphy and the Fairfax police chief at the time, Rick Patterson, drove to New England to talk to her. They also drove to New Hampshire to interview the woman's mother and siblings, and finally to Kentucky to speak to her father. They also spoke with the woman's therapist because, as it turned out, she had some psychological problems. The therapist told police the woman, no doubt, believed that what she was saying was the truth. And just in case she was, Murphy arranged to get a cadaver dog from Foxborough Police to sniff around the house. The dog found nothing. They decided there was nothing to the woman's claim. Without any evidence of any sort, people are left to just picking their favorite theories. Murphy, the detective, his best guess is that the boys died accidentally the day they went missing. He told WCPO, all the construction that was going on in Fairfax back then, they may have gone in a hole and was buried up with dirt that fell in behind them and didn't make it out. And we just didn't dig in the right areas. 
But Bonnie, Johnny's sister, isn't so sure. Her strongest theory, that they were killed. She said she wishes police would try talking to that McKee again. She's even got her eyes on a potential burial spot, a wooded area where an old schoolhouse used to be. Many members of John and Jimmy's family are gone now, but those who remain still mourn their loss. Bonnie said she reminds everyone each year on her Facebook page. She said, it's terrible, just absolutely terrible. We're all getting old. We got to know something. If he's dead, then we want to know that. We want closure. Detective Murphy said time is running out. Memories are fading. People are dying. Every investigator originally assigned to the case, from Fairfax, the Hamilton County Sheriff's Department, the Cincinnati Police Department, they are all dead. The case is beyond cold, Steve. It's frozen, perhaps for all time. You know, John brings up a great, John Takis. Hey, hey, John, he brings up a good point. $20 was $166 back. That was a lot of money. Now, the, boy, the waitress said the boys volunteered that they had found that bill. That's a lot of money to find. And if you found a $20 bill, well, I guess maybe they would use that to pay because then it would break the 20 and then they could share it. I don't know. That bill is really intriguing. And I, like I said, I think that might be why the police held on to the idea of, of the boys running away. Maybe they had taken that money from someone. Well, that's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-size Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. All of your mysteries. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.